0: The question of identity is a central question for all of us as human beings. We, um, we face this question in, 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 on a daily basis, I'm sure. Um, there are many different ways of answering this question of who am I? Um, who are we? How, how do we define who we are? And that question of identity is in some ways... Uh, central to our text tonight. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now for two weeks, and we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we took a little bit of the infancy narrative last week. We're going to leave that for Advent and Christmas, and now we're jumping ahead to, the, to this story of the temptation or testing of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil in Luke chapter 4. And then next week we'll begin, in earnest, Jesus's public ministry as we Look at the center, once again. Seek not to be distracted, but look back at Jesus and, uh, and, and seek to set our eyes upon him, the author of life and our faith. At baptism, if you've been baptized, and I assume that many of you, I know many of you in this room have been baptized, the, the symbolism of what, what is taking place, certainly in a baptism by immersion especially, so I might use pick on Andrea because we went through her baptism together this summer, um, is of your old person, self, being laid down, buried in the waters with Christ on the cross. And of your, your new man or self or person being raised up with Christ, who was raised from the dead into new life. And you've been raised. And the, the, the symbolism of this is an exchange of an old identity, of who you once were, Um, As a sheep gone astray, somebody who was pursuing life on your own terms, to now actually having this divine stamp upon you as God's child in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're given this identity at your baptism. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You, You couldn't have. It's been given to you. So that's what takes place in Christian baptism. So the question of your identity in Jesus is is answered, it's it's certain, it's um, immovable and unshakable. But this next question isn't. And that is the question of how will you live out your identity as a son or daughter of the living God? How will you live that out in your day-to-day life, in your vocation, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? How will this identity that you've been given be lived out? And let me um, attempt an illustration or analogy with, say, say for example, a a president. Um, That's an identity of of one kind, at least, the the president of the United States. There there are presidents and presidents and presidents. But the manner in which they uh, live out their administration, the the policies that they um, pass and write into law, the, the ethos that they create, the, the, the rhetoric that they use shapes this identity that they have as a president. So that Bush is different from Clinton, he's different from Obama, he's different from Jefferson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the question that I want us to see that this text is asking of Jesus, and in many ways also of us, is, how will he, that is Jesus, live out his God-given identity as the Son of God? And therefore then, how will you and I live out the identity that God has given to us in our baptism? By grace. That's the question that's before us as we jump into this text. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. and, And God says... These words to Jesus, You are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. This voice came from heaven. There's a declaration of Jesus' status as the Son of God. In fact, Luke, for the first three chapters, is in building up the, the unique identity of Jesus. The virgin birth, the, the pronouncements of the angels before he was born, um, his birth, his, his um, precocious moment in the temple at age 12 which takes place at the end of chapter 2. Luke's been narrating for us this unique identity, and then we hear it finally affirmed in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, with the Spirit upon him, in bodily form like a dove. And then in the, uh, I'm sure you're glad that we didn't preach a sermon on the end of chapter 3, because it's a genealogy. Um, I I told Ben that he might have to do that, but... um, Spared him and you, all of all what that could have meant for us. The main point to take out from the genealogy, uh, at least for purposes of right now, is that the last, um, the last verse of chapter 3 says, the son of Ethos, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus' unique identity is the son of God. Luke has established that. Move in now to chapter 4, and the question becomes, how will Jesus live out this unique identity as God's Son? How will he do it? And this um, text of the temptation or testing of Jesus in the wilderness is set in um, in the backdrop of this text are two other sons of God who have gone before Jesus. And the first was from our Old Testament reading tonight, Adam, the Son of God, as Luke's just drawn attention to. Another passage that strikes us with some similarity to what we've just read in in Luke 4 where the serpent is interacting with Adam and Eve in the the garden and um, challenging the word of God and there's a lot of allusion here to this original son of God, Adam. And we know the story, we read the story tonight of how that ends with Adam and Eve taking of the fruit that was forbidden, choosing to go their own way and failing at that point at which God had commanded them to do otherwise, and the other backdrop to this story, the other son of God is actually the nation of Israel in exodus four twenty two Israel is referred to as god 's firstborn son, so Israel has this unique status as the son of God, and if you know your Old Testament or you walk through the old testament the, the The basic gist of the story is that Israel, too, like Adam, the son of God, has failed and fallen short. Has taken up the vocation only to to be a tragic failure in many ways and to go his own way. How will Jesus do? That's the narrative question at the moment. How will Jesus do in light of these two stories of sons of God that have fallen short? How will Jesus do in his time of trial? How will he live out this identity that has preceded him in Adam and in Israel, now given to him, the unique Son of God? How will he he respond? So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of clarification. It's a place of of refinement. It's a place where the subtle nuances of day-to-day life that we can't really see when we're living, the difference between faithfulness and obedience to our God in the day-to-day and over and against idolatry and self-seeking, those differences are sometimes so hard to see in our daily lives. But in the wilderness, things get a little bit clearer. And God's people have often been sent out into the wilderness for a time of testing, a time of refinement, a time of clarification. And that's what happens here. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led now into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Identities given, status, privilege, authority, power, are known. But how will he handle these things? How will he walk out this unique identity that he's been given? That's the question before us. And let me me just say this. Uh, as I said already, m- many of you I know have been baptized. Many of you have been given this unique identity as a son or daughter of God by virtue of his grace, by virtue of his pursuit of you, his love for you, his care for you. Um, one of the most obvious things we can take from this text is that you better believe and count on the fact that that identity will be challenged by an enemy. As part of a cosmic conflict that you and I are living in today. If Jesus is not immune to this kind of testing and trial that challenges his identity as the Son of God, then neither are you and neither am I. There will be testing. Maybe right now you're in a moment of great testing. Maybe you're not, but there will be testing and that identity will become known in those tes- in that testing through that testing how you will respond to it will be known so jesus how 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 does he respond if you are the son of god the devil says then turn these stones make them, command the stone to become bread okay jesus how long's it been since he had his last meal 40 days. He's hungry, the text says at the end of verse 2. And when these days were ended, he was hungry. The devil says, okay, if you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. What's going on here is that the devil is saying to Jesus the way that you are to use your power in your life, your status in your life, is to pursue your own needs in your own way. Sound a little bit familiar, maybe, to some of the ways that we think about our own lives, sometimes? The way that that you're to use the privilege that God has given to you, maybe the way that you're to use even your identity as a follower of Jesus, is to suit your own needs in your own way. To be your own master. Master. He defines the Son of God not as one who is faithful and obedient to the voice of God, dependent, exercising all of his will on behalf of God's purposes in the world, but instead as one who uses his power or advantage to meet his own legitimate needs. It's legitimate to be hungry. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone. And if you'd extend the quote as Matthew does, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The problem for us is that um, we often are very, very hungry. We're often uh, deeply um, needy. We often have wants that are, are incredibly strong, appetites that are strong. And the temptation that the devil brings into our lives is always to say, well, just go after those on your own. Don't trust in God to provide for you. Just go get them on your own. Use whatever you can to go get those things that you need on your own. And sometimes the need becomes so pronounced, and it's interesting that the need in this passage is as pronounced as it can get food. As we know, if you go without a meal, you're hungry. If you go out without a meal for 40 days, you're starving. The needs are sometimes so pronounced that the temptation and the test is always to forego our identity as those who depend upon the Lord in everything and in every circumstance and for everything and grab things for ourselves. Philippians 3 talks about um, those who oppose God as their God is their belly. Which is another way of saying this, that the needs dominate so much so much so that, you know, that we could even take this, this life of Jesus that we have and turn it all into something that's about me and my needs being met. And forgo anything to do with taking up the cross and pursuing Jesus on, on, on the road to the cross in faithful obedience. And turn it into a, a session of, of trying to feel better, trying to, to cope with my intense needs and emotional uh, wants and desires or comforts and those kinds of things. This is always a temptation That we face. The second test Jesus is taken up to this high place, we don't know exactly where it is, and shown all the kingdoms of the world. Now, Jesus is um, the rest of the story for the Messiah, for this unique Son of God, is that he is to become a worldwide king and ruler, to rule and reign over all the creation. This is his by right. This is what comes with his unique identity. And the devil takes him up and shows him all these kingdoms. And says, He says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. In other words, he's saying you can have what really belongs to you now. You can have it through this kind of interesting exchange and scheme. If you want it, you can take it. You can have it right now, Jesus. You can take this, this um, Son of God identity that you have and, and you can actually live this out right now. It's your best life now, so to speak. This is for you. But instead of this devilish status-seeking and power-grabbing, Jesus knows the word. Jesus knows the word. He knows the will of God. And Jesus knows that His um, his Elevation to a worldwide ruler and king will not be through some kind of, of whimsical exchange of allegiance to his father with allegiance to a lesser God that it grants immediate results without any effort, but that his exaltation to a worldwide, worldwide ruler will come through humble, selfless, sacrificial service in obedience, and ultimately through death, through becoming the Lamb who was slain. It's interesting, isn't it? We're often promised that um, certain things, we, we, we often, we long sometimes to be, to be significant or to, be, to have glory, to have joy, to have peace. And there's so much stuff in the world that says, come and get it now. Come and get it for me right now. And the implicit message is for those of us who follow Jesus that I mean, money, that's a huge one. That's a huge one for us in our culture. Get it now so that you can become peaceful, joyful, satisfied, respected. All the things that you long for. And in many ways, might I just add, rightfully long for as one created in God's image. As a being of inherent worth and dignity made in the image of God, we long rightly for joy, for peace, even for glory. We were made for it. But at every turn in our world today, the devil turns everything and says, you can have those things, but you have them on my terms. You can have them now. Why go through this long road of discipleship? Why go through this long road of unknowing and uncertainty and trial and mundane in order to have something that you're not even sure it's going to come? Why not just take it now? But the cost is always your soul. Jesus says he who would gain the whole world but forfeits his soul. So Jesus resists. Jesus resists. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6 uh, about worshiping the Lord your God and serving him only. The third test the devil brings to Jesus. He changes his tactics a little bit. He isn't having too much success with the first two tests. The third test is to take him to this um, high, high pinnacle in the temple in Jerusalem and to quote Psalm 91 to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, Psalm 91 says that God's going to protect you. God's going to care for you. So throw yourself down from this pinnacle and, and show, show us that this is really going to work. Show us that this is really real. The, the response that Jesus gives is, is very instructive to us. Jesus says, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. This is a direct echo back to the, to the Israelites in the wilderness. When they put God to the test, asking for bread, asking for water, saying, God, if you were really God, you would do this for, for me, for us. If you were really who you say you were, you would do these things for us. And they put God to the test. Listen to God's response according to Psalm 78. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Have you ever demanded something of God? Something legitimate? Something that even you know God's will, generally speaking, is for just saying okay god you've got to give me this they spoke against god saying can god spread a table in the wilderness god can you really meet my emotional need god can you really make me well he struck the rocks so that water gushed out and streams overflowed can he also give bread or provide meat for his people And listen to God's response to this kind of testing that the devil is tempting Jesus to do with his father and he tempts us to do all the time. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Why? This evoked evoked a strong response from God, this kind of testing, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving Power. Jesus knows that this kind of testing of God that we like to do sometimes as as human beings, this kind of testing of God is an offense to his father. Because it indicates a lack of belief and a lack of trust, which is the very thing that defines the children of God. So it cuts against the grain, directly against the grain of, of this identity that's been given to you at your baptism. To shake your fist and demand something of God, demand that He give you something, and to question His ability to do so. So Jesus turns and says that it's not good that we're, we're called not to put the Lord our God to test. This is not the way of the children of God. I'll say a few things as we close. First, Jesus' response to the devil every time is what? It's the scriptures. The way of dealing with testing, when you're in a dark place, when you're in a place, when you're in the wilderness, and maybe God has led you there, the way of dealing with that place is not to get into a long conversation about it. It's not to argue, to run the argument over and over and over again in your head, because that sometimes becomes a way of justifying the temptation until you fall prey to it. But Jesus demonstrates the way that we respond. By quoting scripture. Now this presupposes that he knows the scriptures well. He knows the will of God. And so he's calling upon that and just fighting arrow with, 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 with sword. To go to Ephesians 6. Arrow, the fiery darts of the evil one, with the sword of the word of God. This, the, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he's, he's using these promises and he's using them instructively for him in that moment. And for us as those whose identity will be questioned as well. In John four thirty four, Jesus says he's hungry once again. He hasn't eaten, and his disciples come up to him, and they've got some food, and they're like, Jesus, don't you want something to eat? And he says, my food, he says, I have a food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what I live on. That's what I'm hungry for. That's my appetite. That's what satisfies me. That's what I'm made for. And that is the way of life. The way of blessing, the way of joy, the way of rescue, the way of peace. What we see in this text is that Jesus passes the test. So it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The testing wasn't over, it wasn't a one-off thing. But Jesus surpasses the test and he shows himself faithful and obedient to his heavenly father. The one thing that defines the children of God more than anything else is faithful obedience. Isn't it an ear that's, in, that's listening and that in a heart that's, that's, that's meditating upon and a mind that's searching for the will of our Father according to his word. That's the one thing that defines the children of God more than anything else. And when you're in the desert and you're under temptation and the devil is throwing things at you day in and day out, the wonderful feelings of a worship service like this aren't going to take you very far. But a depth of knowledge of the Word of God will provide this rock upon which you can stand, the sword with which you can fight. This isn't just figurative wilderness. This is this is real stuff in your life, and you know what I'm talking about in your own life. This is that point at which this is that knife edge where you're deciding whether to be faithful or to worship someone else. To get the glory now, to feel good now, to have it all now. So you've been given an identity. Jesus has been given an identity. How will you live it out? Two things to close. First of all this Jesus that we celebrate this Jesus that we worship, this Jesus that we've been watching here is a model for us in temptation and testing and trial. He's come for those who fail the test. If you're sitting here feeling like you know, I've been tempted and I've fallen in that temptation three times last week. What What's left for me? The good news of the gospel that we proclaim week after week is that this Jesus has come and has paid and has given his life so that you can live in a whole new way. So that you can be forgiven for the failures of last week. For the temptations that you fell prey to. For the idolatry that you pursued last week. And have a fresh start right now. That's the glory of the gospel is that he's given himself so that we might have free, have life, have grace, and have this identity that God has given to us. But it doesn't stop there. Because he's then, as he brings us into his family, he then sends us out in his name to be his agents by his spirit, with his power, so that through us he might receive glory and honor in all things in this world. So he has given himself for you. So, not so that his, his, his passing the test would be um, so that you don't need to pass the test, but so that you can have this new identity and this power in order to walk faithfully as a son or daughter of God in this present life right now. In order to, bear, to bring the mission of God to the whole world in your little tiny corner, and through all of us who follow Jesus in this city, not just the Church of the Cross, but all over, bring this glory of God to the city of Boston in mission. Amen.